The deep eye is pure light. In this podcast, Eckhart answers questions from a live audience, including a father who says he wants to help bring presence into the lives of his active and unconscious teenagers who spend too much time on their devices, computers, and cell phones. A woman in the audience says she's interested in manifesting her purpose, but also wonders if it's necessary to be very specific in the process of manifesting her goals. Another woman asks about identity at what Eckhart calls the deep eye level and asks if we are all really the same. Eckhart uses a movie metaphor to explain the deep eye by saying, in a movie, as individual images appear on a screen, they all come from the same light pouring through the projector. He says the essence of the deep eye is like that. It's pure light with his wisdom and also his humor. Eckhart brings his unique perspective to these questions and many others. Enjoy. Hi, Eckhart. Hi. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I want to make sure I'm understanding tonight's teaching correctly. So this was my interpretation. Beyond our form, beyond our thought and our emotions, beyond our past experiences, is the deep eye. Does that mean at the level of the deep eye, we are all the same, we are all identical, we are all the same light, and therefore we're not individual? At the deepest level, you're not an individual. The individuality goes beyond the physical form. It goes a bit deeper than that. Even beyond your physical form, you are still an individual. Quite a way down, you are still an individual. Then gradually, as you go deeper, the individuality merges with something vast and all-encompassing. And this vastness that is the universal consciousness that pervades the universe. So at the deepest level, there is no individuality. What people are afraid of is they say, what does it help me if the consciousness that animates this body survives after my death, but I won't be there anymore? (laughs) It's a misunderstanding. (laughs) Let's say, if I asked you a weird question, what does it feel like to be you? What does it feel like? And the answer, the answer doesn't come through thinking about it. And it does, I don't require an, uh, a verbal answer. What does it feel like to be you? You have to kind of go within. What does it, without looking to memory to tell you who or what you are, without going to, to, to your memory banks, without the memory, let's say you have no past, uh, what does it feel like to be you without the past? Are you still there? I don't want an answer. It's a pointer. Are you still there without remembering anything about you? That feeling of beingness, that's still there. That's very interesting. That becomes mixed up with form identity. It becomes diluted so to speak, and it becomes forms. But when you identify with something, at the root of the feeling of individuality, there's actually, at the root of it, that's not individuality, that's the transpersonal, the deepest, the essence is there. What looks to you like individuality 
the feeling of being you is actually derived from that deeper place and not from the history. <laughs> the, 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 it gets confused with the history of you, with thought. Um, consciousness in its pure form, which is the, in the, the deep eye, is that's the pure light, you can say, the pure light. Then the light becomes, um, let's use an analogy of a movie. <laughs> if, you, if you watch a movie, there's a projector, I suppose that still exists if you go to a cinema, technology's changed, but at least it used to be like that, I think it still is, there's a screen and there's a projector and there's a film that runs through the projector and there's a powerful light behind that. And so the light shines through the film and it animates the figures in the film, the movie. There's only one light, but light, this light gets broken up into characters and events and things happening and that's projected onto the screen. <laughs> uh, but the essence of every character is the light. The character kind of temporarily obscures some of the light, so that's why he or she appears as a character. Now imagine to take this analogy almost to a point of absurdity, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, what if, if, let's say, these movie characters on the screen, let's say they have a little bit of beginning of self-awareness, but they are acting out the, the script, of course, they can't help it, they have to act out the script. <laughs> but at some point, in the middle of acting out the script, they are questioning something, who, who am I actually? What, what is the essence of me? And then if they, go, they begin to realize there's a light that shines and that light animates me. And then perhaps they, to take the analogy even further, <laughs> then their attention, the, the light is then recognized as the essence and then they follow the light back to the source the attention moves back as they connect with the original source of the powerful light in the projector. <laughs> and suddenly they realize who they, who they are beyond the character. And they continue to act out the script. And this is a good analogy in that sense because every human being is conditioned by the past. And this conditioning in the absence of awakening determines how they behave and what they do and what they think. So they are conditioned entities, programmed to behave in certain ways, forced to act out the script that everybody is given, a, grows up with, they absorb a script, which is a conditioning of their life. And then there's a possibility of awakening in the midst of all that drama, the movie, most movies are interesting because things go wrong to the characters experience problems. If the characters don't experience problems, the movie is extremely boring. Imagine a movie where nothing goes wrong. <laughs> you fall asleep. Uh, and this applies to real life also. <laughs> when people go to a movie and nothing happens or everything functions beautifully, there was a beautiful movie called Titanic. Now, everybody, Everybody already knew what was going to happen unless the director managed to make it so interesting. Everybody knew it was going to go down. But things go wrong even at the, before the ship sinks. 
there, there's already conflict between the characters that makes it, in, it's not that they have a wonderful time and then the ship sinks. <laughs> no, they, <laughs> there's, there's already conflict between the characters. Now imagine a movie that's called Titanic where everything works beautifully and they arrive in New York and the boat doesn't sink. <laughs> Extremely uninteresting. <laughs> so we want to see every movie, we can reduce every script, movie script. Soon after the movie starts, something goes wrong. It has to, otherwise there is no movie. <laughs> and the same in life. As soon as you come into this life, things start going wrong. They go right too, but also wrong. The proportion of right and wrong varies from person to person. If, if you have bad karma, you're already born into a dreadful situation, whatever it may be, either poverty, or it could be wealth, but absolute dysfunction, totally crazy parents, all these things are possible. Some humans, every human is born into a situation. But even in the best of cases, there will be things that go wrong. And that is how consciousness evolves. Consciousness does not evolve if humans remain in their comfort zone. There's no awakening in your comfort zone. If there is an awakening, it won't be very deep. It'll be a very pleasant feeling. But the moment you're confronted with a challenging situation, it'll be gone. Like a plant that grows in a greenhouse, uh, protected from the environment, from the weather. But the moment you plant it outside, it cannot survive because it has, to, it has not developed the strength which only come, comes when you encounter obstacles. So the, the question then, yes, the individuality is there and disappears into the realization of oneness when you go deep enough. But the consciousness from that deep transcendent place, the light of consciousness shines into even your so-called individuality, that, that which gives life to your so-called, your personal history, the memory of your history, that which gives light to it is the light of consciousness too, but it's not recognized as the light of consciousness. You don't recognize that not only the pure consciousness, there's the also the consciousness that takes on forms, that it becomes forms. And that is the dream state where the, you experience, uh, you're, as a character in the movie, you're acting out the script of your life. Many humans, uh, till the end of their lives, act out the script. They never become free of their conditioning. That's a pity, but hopefully they'll come again and have, have another go at it. Uh, <laughs> yes, so that's really how it is. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Eckhart. Hello. Thanks for your teachings. Thank you. The question is on kids. I have a teenager at home, and like many most teenagers, they tend to get unconscious. <laughs> so I think what I've seen is when they are small, I mean, they are the most present, right? They are in the present and doing everything with the joy. 
as they grow up, middle school, high school, some, some stage we give them a cell phone. <laughs> they have computers to work on, homeworks and everything. And obviously they're trying to identify themselves and they become unconscious. So the question is, and it is a good spiritual practice, even for me, sometimes I can be conscious when they are unconscious and sometimes you are drawn into the unconsciousness. So the question is, what can we do to bring in that presence into their lives or what are, if there's anything that you, know, you are doing or Eckhart Teachings is doing with the schools, in right. middle schools or high schools where we can have a course or something where, you know, as a group, they can get some kind of presence teachings. Yes, thank you. That's very important. Thank you. The question could also refer to parents, how to approach teenage years typically are difficult. So the, the human ego has to, at that point, the human ego has to develop and grow. Unfortunately, the way it is, it is for most humans on the planet so far is the human ego should be a, a limited time period when it grows in a human being. Let's say up to the age of um, 25 at the most, 30, let's, let's say mid-20s. You cannot prevent the arising of ego in a child and an adolescent, nor should you want to prevent it. It's not possible. They need to develop a sense of separate identity that is part of the evolution. The tragedy is, unfortunately, if people get stuck with that ego for the rest of their lives, they never go beyond it. So for a parent, to begin with parent, it's to observe the, the growth of the ego in the child, which already starts with, may start at the age of two or three, when the child begins to, well, the child learns his or her name, and then it, the child learns that it is possible to possess something. It learns the concept of mine fairly early, and so it possesses a toy and it learns the concept of my toy, that's the beginning of ego. Also the beginning of the suffering that comes with ego identification, because if the toy is lost or disappears or somebody takes it, enormous suffering arises. Oh, oh, my toy, mine. This is the early suffering of egoic consciousness. The next step would be for the child to assert that it is better in some ways than another. I can jump higher than you. Can you, can, can you jump this high? No, you can't look at me. I can do it. And parents say, you're great, you're doing it. And that's fine. If you don't overdo the praise, give praise when praise is deserved, but don't just praise anything because then there comes an inflation of praise and that can create a narcissistic personality which is an overblown ego. <laughs> Many par parents these days do that. They say everything you do is so great, you're the greatest, you're wonderful. It feels good for the child, but you know when you print money, it loses its value, it's called inflation. 
um, I know that, but many politicians these days don't seem to know it. Uh, and they probably have a degree in economics. Uh, but that's on the side. <laughs> so you are there to gently guide them. You observe the growth of their ego, as it has to. Uh, gently guide them, and school, ideally, should prepare children for adulthood and should also prepare them perhaps for the transcendence of ego. Perhaps they can even, I just, when I said 25 years old, just number came to me, it could already be at 21. Ego is something that needs to be overcome, but something that is necessary for a certain stage of human development. So schools should encourage children not to excessively identify with concepts. And there are a few alternative schools, I believe, that already, to some extent, do that. There are perhaps, I, I don't know, Montessori schools or Rudolf Steiner schools and so on. They, to some extent, they encourage children not to be excessively drawn into conceptualization at an early age, that is very dangerous also to be given the devices at a very early age has a very detrimental effect on their development. It's, I know it's an easy thing to do for parents, to keep them quiet, but it, it, it is not good for the growth of their consciousness. Children need to remain in touch for as long as possible with nature. In some way, they need to be taken out into nature, even if it's just a park, but preferably out of the city periodically, where they are encouraged to interact with nature, leave, their, leave all the devices behind. Every school should do that, take them out in groups where they spend time connecting with nature without their devices. These are all important things. Also, to teach even um, abstract subjects like mathematics and so on at too early an age is also detrimental for their development. So there are many things that I know, I have met quite a few teachers over the years who are already bringing that into their classrooms. So, but, but so far, mostly on an individual basis, it's rare for it to become a already part of the official curriculum, that's still relatively rare. Although there are some schools now also, they, I don't know what schools they are, whether they, are, they may be private schools, they teach mindfulness. I don't often use that term, but basically mindful is to be present in what you do. I don't use that term because it implies that your mind is full. Uh, so I'd rather not use that, but they teach mindfulness. So for, for a parent to encourage the child not to get lost in conceptualization, to encourage the child to continue to interact with nature. If you can't get in, have an animal in the house that is nature too, a cat or a dog, encourage the child to look after the animal, to relate to the animal. Very important. Animal presence can be very important in a home, especially for children. So it, it requires uh, teachers to finally um, establish 
the teaching of presence uh, as part of the curriculum, and that implies also, it signifies help children to become aware of their emotions. That was one of the most vital things. And if it's not taught at school, the parents have to do it. Well, the parents should do it anyway. Help the children to become aware of their emotions because the emotions can wreak havoc with the child's life. And sometimes they get amplified in the teenage years when many adolescents become very hostile and they're consumed by negative emotions, by self-hatred, by hatred of others, by hatred of everything, very destructive emotions. So uh, the most vital thing that a child already at an age of four or five needs to begin to be taught to observe his or her emotional field rather than be always taken over by it. Many children, almost all children, already have pain bodies some stronger than others. And that's another important point here where when you observe the tantrum earlier in the previous session today, somebody said their mind sometimes feels like a toddler's tantrum taking place in their mind. Yes, the, the tantrums of toddlers can be quite violent. They may throw themselves on the floor and scream or throw. And that's, that is the pain body. So I would highly recommend, and this should be done at schools as part of uh, the curriculum, and there should be children, there are a few children's books that teach that also. Teach the child to be aware of their pain body. Not while it happens, because nobody will be listening to you. Uh, you, you, cannot, you cannot make a, even an adult, you cannot make them aware of their pain body in the middle of a pain body attack. Uh, that does not work because the only person you'll be speaking to is the pain body and the pain body won't like it. <laughs> but afterwards, the next day, you talk to the child, what happened yesterday when you threw yourself on the floor? What was that? What, what was that thing that got into you? What, what, do you remember that? What was that thing? What did that feel like? If you had to make a drawing of it, what would it look like, that thing that got into you? What, what would that look like? What, what color is it? But, uh, encourage the child to place attention on the emotion. In other words, there's a presence there. Instead of being the emotion, the child can begin to become aware of the emotion. This does not necessarily prevent the next pain body attack. But then you do it again, uh, next paper, and then next day you say, that happened again. Was it the same thing? Was it, did it feel the same as before? Was it the same little gremlin there, if it's child? But let, let the child use the terms. Uh, and then say, yes, it was the same, okay. Encourage perhaps the child to make a little painting of it. And the next time it happens, then you can say, well, in the middle of it or at the beginning of it, then you can say, ah, there it is again, isn't it? And that can bring in awareness even while it's happening. But you need to prepare the child first, otherwise it won't work. And they may not necessarily stop it, it will probably continue. But at least a little bit of awareness will have come in 
There it is again, isn't it? Yeah. No, it isn't. It's not. <laughs> I also remember as a child, I'd, there was a time in my early teens, I had very negative emotions, very self-destructive, violent emotions. I didn't act them out, unfortunately, but but they were, I was almost consumed by very destructive emotions. And of course, nobody had any idea of presence or mindfulness at that time anywhere. Would have been unheard of. And virtual, virtually all parents were very unconscious. Um, at least nowadays there are, there's a certain percentage of parents that are relatively conscious and bring, bring up their children consciously or as much as possible. But even then, you will find the difficulty of dealing with the child's emotions. So very, very important, at an early age, begin to teach the child to be conscious of their emotions rather than being taken over by the emotions. Uh, the worst thing you can do is when the child has a pain body attack, uh, allow it to trigger your pain body, <laughs> which unfortunately happens quite a lot too, because the, the energy of, this, of the pain body is so raw and so, there's such aggression in it that an unconscious parent will be drawn into, deep, into deeper unconsciousness and then react and start shouting, stop it, stop it. Of course, it won't stop it. So the, the pain body has spread even to the parent. So that's, these are all important things to bring presence so that the teenage years then become a little easier. Another important thing that also should be practiced at school, but its home environment is very important. How do the parents live? When you bring up children, the greatest teaching is how the family relates to it, how the parents relate to each other and so on. That is, that's what the children absorb rather than what they are being told. There should be a presence in the household, in the family environment. And uh, a very important aspect of that is to listen to the child. It's amazing that this should be practiced also at schools, but more importantly at home, for the parent to listen to the child. And you would be amazed how many cases that doesn't happen at all because the parents are so lost in doing, they have a busy life, they are lost in doing, and the only way they interact with the child is either telling the child what to do or what not to do. Don't do that. Have you done this? No, you need to do that. Have you done your homework? Okay. And they mean well. They want to do the best for their child and to encourage the child to do the right thing. Don't go there. Don't not. Just have you brushed your teeth? Don't go brush your teeth. Okay. Good night. They don't. When I say listen, I mean to give the child attention beyond any doing or not doing. Give the child attention. It's What's, what happened today, how are you feeling, what do you have to tell me, this, give it, it doesn't matter what, what the child says, but you direct attention, not, a, not attention that, that's, that involves doing, pure attention. The child wants to be recognized by the parent in its being, 
And if the parent does not recognize the child in its being, the child can feel unconsciously that there's something missing. There's, it wants to be recognized in its beingness, not just do the right thing. It's not the doing. And then that is perhaps the main factor that makes teenagers so angry because they know there's something important missing. And often they're angry at their parents. And their parents have done all they thought they could do, all the best. They brush their teeth every night <laughs> and make sure that they do their homework. And now have you done that? And he said, no, it wasn't enough. Doing your best is not enough because what's missing is being. So no matter how, how, how much you do, it's not enough. You have to bring in the dimension of being in the interaction with your child. So give them attention. That means you too have to refrain from doing for a moment and, and be with the child. First, you have to be with yourself. You have to go deep enough so that you can be present and then you look at the child. And, that's right. and you, don't, you don't want anything from him or her, you just look. And then perhaps words happen, you talk a bit, what did you do today? It doesn't matter what the child says, the, the attention that you give. That's what the child longs for, it wants to be recognized by the parent in, in its being. And so that in this world that is still relatively rare, unfortunately, and that's one of the biggest mistakes parents make, but they can't help it because they haven't recognized it in themselves. So in order to live this, you need to recognize it in yourself and then you can live it. So there's a lot there that is uh, possible and necessary in the uh, upbringing of a child and I know that more and more teachers are becoming interested in this and more and more teachers are bringing it into their classroom, not officially yet in many cases, but they introduce some elements of presence or mindfulness into their classroom. But it needs to be practiced on a much larger scale because the world is going to, what's that weird expression? To hell in a handbasket. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but um, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not moving in the right direction, you might have noticed. And there is a lot of unhappiness in children and a lot of their prescribed mind-altering drugs at an early age when that is not necessary, in fact it's bad, just because the parents are not present, they don't even know what presence is. They, can't, they don't know any better. So all this is, uh, these are very important changes that need to happen. And uh, I'm, uh, thank you for asking that important question. Thank you. Hello. Hello. So unlike you with Oprah, I am bursting with excitement right now. <laughs> so thank you so much for having me. And um, I also just want to um, give you a giant 
virtual hug. Oh, thank as you. As I'm sure so many in the room would like to do as well. Thank you. And uh, my question is around manifesting. I get twisted in my head about that because uh, all my life I, I have felt I have a purpose and the purpose is connected with joining and being of service and support and expansion of consciousness. And I know it's out there. I know that that's going to be something I'm very involved with at some point. And I am familiar with manifesting and the deep knowing of, you know, what that is. And at the same time, there are a lot of spiritual teachers that talk about being very specific when you manifest something. And I have no idea what it's going to look like. I, and I, most of the time, when there is something related to my deeper purpose, if I try to go you know, left and make that happen, usually I go right. The, like it's the invisible hand guiding me right, and I feel like, well, I'm not. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't really feel like I know I'm the right one to manifest my purpose because I don't know as high as my deepest self. Yes. So um, are you manifesting your purpose in your life? Well, I know that it's going to be there. I, I, in the sense that I've always had the sense, you know, once I retire in five or ten years or something, that I'll be doing something else right. that has to do with that. And, but I don't know if it's here. I don't know if it's there. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if it's working for Eckhart teachings or whether it's, you know, working right. at a wellness center or yes. participating in something. I have no idea what it looks like. Yes. I just know that that is my purpose. Yes. Can you summarize? My question, question is, do I need to be specific? Because right. that's so much of what the spiritual teachers that I was just listening to one recently. Right. Be specific when you manifest your purpose. Yes. For some people that works, but it can also limit it. Um, if, uh, if I had been specific, I would probably have limited it. Uh, sometimes the universe has bigger plans than you have. And so my first experience of manifestation, which is a, is a, it's a form of spirituality to, to manifest, it's important. It's not the deepest. Uh, the deepest is to realize the essence of who you are. Then you can still manifest if you want to, and you'll be quite good at it, but it's secondary. So. For me, uh, there was a kind of spiritual awakening when I was 17 years old, in the sense that I'd always been very, very negative, and um, always uh, one of the mind patterns, uh, thoughts that could go through my head was, bad things always happen to me, of course, they always do, they always, and they did. Uh, and then I accidentally came across a, uh, some books that, uh, I, I, at the time, I was living in Spain with my dad, and uh, a German woman had le gone back to Germany, and he le left some books with us. They were a spiritual teacher who is not well known anymore, a German spiritual teacher with a Chinese name. <laughs> and um, I started reading these books, and they were about the, uh, there's a relationship between your external life and, and your inner state. And if you change your inner state, you change your external life. That was such a revelation to me. I'd never heard that before. 
And at the time I was uh, learning to type, teaching myself on a typewriter, they don't exist anymore, to type. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had copied, practicing typing, I copied many pages of those books. And then I started practicing, changing my thoughts and becoming, feeling uh, good things were going to happen to me. I was not very specific because I didn't know what exactly would happen. Uh, I attract good things into my life, I attract whatever. And then a few months later, shift happened. I was longing to get away from the, where I was living with my dad and his second wife. Uh, that was as dysfunctional as my, his first wife, my mother, they're living together. I need to get out of here, please take me out of here. And finally, I got a job offer in England without an interview. It was a miracle and it was a good job and had virtually no qualifications. It was an absolute miracle. And uh, the, and I knew that it had, I, I had created, I had manifested that, just amazing. And one of the happiest moments of my early life was saying goodbye, I'm off. <laughs> It was so wonderful, and uh, and in England, oh, things, many things developed, miraculous things that could never have expected. So, if I don't think you need to be too specific, unless there's something that you, you desperately want or need. But hopefully, since you've gone deep enough into yourself, there's nothing that you desperately want or need, <laughs> because whatever happens happens on the horizontal dimension is an adding on. As Jesus said, whatever you manifest in this external life is lovely, but seek first the kingdom of heaven. That all the things that, that you think you, that you need will be added on to you. So what he's saying is the world of external manifestation Yes, you have to deal with this world, and it can be a lovely practice, but it's an adding on. And there may come a time when you don't need to manifest anything anymore. Things, things have acquired a certain momentum, and it's growing. I've asked some successful people, did you practice manifestation before you achieved your sex? And one or two said, yes, yes, I did. Um, one specifically said, I think he's probably told about it publicly, so I probably don't need to keep his name a secret, but I'll do it anyway, just in case. Well, he said um, he had wrote himself a check for, I think it was, well, I can't remember how much it was, $10 million, something, and put it in his wallet, yeah. and he always spoke at it. And uh, three years later, he got a check for $10 million mm -hmm. for a movie role, and he got it. And then I asked Oprah, did you ever, practice manifestitude, but he said, no, it just, it just came. What she does practice is a gratitude book. Every day she writes something to be grateful for or several things to be grateful. It's a very powerful tool to help you be present. To be grateful means an appreciation, an alignment with what is. So that's a powerful thing that is non-specific but the more grateful you are for what is, the more 
things will come to you. If you honor this moment, what is this moment, then the future, the so-called future, which never comes except as the present moment, will reflect that uh, mindset. So there are others. Sometimes people just start an activity which they enjoy and then enthusiasm comes in and they do more of it and more of it, uh, first on a small scale and they continue. Perhaps they're musicians like the Beatles. They, I don't think they ever thought we are going to be the greatest in the world, the greatest group in the, that ever lived. They just enjoyed the music and then they play it and play it and play it and that's the famous, the famous 10,000 hours of practice that somebody wrote about in a book that he observed that people, many people who achieve mastery in one field, they have 10,000 hours of practice and then at that point an additional element comes in that energizes and amplifies what they do and, and enormous inspiration can suddenly flow in. So that is a good preparation to, to enjoy what you do is in itself a, a tool for man, manifesting good things. And even if the whatever you do is not what really have chosen f for yourself as your life purpose, perhaps it's not even that great a job, but nevertheless you honor it in this moment. You give it attention, you do your best and then it will evolve into something else. But just so the gratitude journal is another thing that I would recommend to everybody. Do you do that or have you done that? I've done it, yeah. but I haven't been doing it. Yeah. Gratitude. Right. But I feel it's, it's good, yes. I mean, it doesn't have to be a journal, but it's helpful. Mm -hmm. um, however, gratitude can also be misunderstood. Um, People say, okay, I'm grateful because my life is, I have so much that other people don't have and I should really be, uh, look at other people and, and I have so much more in whatever better looks or more things. Or look at these poor people, I really should be grateful for what I have. That's not, that's not it. If you're only grateful when you compare yourself to others who have less uh, one way or another, that's not real gratitude. It's not really even gratitude for some life situation. The more powerful thing is gratitude for whatever is this moment, the little things of this moment, for this beautiful flower. You appreciate it, you give it attention, that's all gratitude. An appreciation of the aliveness of the world around you in the present moment. That's, uh, so, um, on the whole, I would advocate for less, not necessarily too specific uh, in most cases. It would limit you. Mm -hmm. um, there may be exceptions to that, mm -hmm. but uh, non-specific does work very well. And, and often, the, the, as you know, the camel driver has his plans, the camel has, so the camel make, might have much bigger plans mm -hmm. than, than you. And I have found the same. I could not quite have imagined the growth of the teaching. I, I had some vision it would grow, but not that much. <laughs> um, so don't limit yourself. And you're doing fine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
so a moment of stillness. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening.